Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 134 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. First of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 134 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or in Stitcher or in iHeartRadio or in Google Play Music or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I'm going to give you a brief description of what this show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 25-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s with the show in two parts. First part of the show, talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks, then do my own personal analysis on the range of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, we'll see if the song was a core of that, whether it be the studio musicians or the band members themselves, or talk about the musicians that played on the song and talk about uh, the studio the song was recorded at, where that studio was located at, and the history behind that as well, the history behind the songwriters that wrote the song, producers that producer, the arrangers that arrange it, and uh, the people the song made up originally built by Hot Water Charts when it first came out. And uh, the year and month the song was released, and the history behind the label the song was released, sound where that label was located, all that in the second, is in the second part of the show. Now, before you on this week's episode of the podcast, uh, I just wanted to say that I did change the release date for my EP. It was supposed to come out on the 14th, but uh, I did change it to the 28th of this month. So, uh, but there is a possibility that you actually you guys might be able to hear the the songs off of this EP uh on the radio actually uh before it come before they come out before they before the songs come out uh you know because I my songs were submitted to a radio station and uh and they you know they they might play in the 14th they might not I'll keep you guys posted on that but um, I, I, I changed the release date because I want, like I said, I wanted to give you guys more time, uh, you know, want, want to give you guys more of a heads up about when my album is coming out and want to get, want you guys to really get ready for it. But there's a chance you might, he, might hear these songs in the radio, the, th- the four extra songs in the radio before the EP is even out, uh, because my songs were submitted, uh, to this radio station and they are going to play my songs around that time. But again, it, m- it might not be played at that time. It might be actually played closer to the release date of the EP, um, which is very, very exciting. It's a, it's a, it's, I believe it's a college radio station. Um, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I'll look it up. Um, but it's actually really cool. And I'll, and I'll let you guys know where you can listen and everything. Um, but yeah, that's very exciting. And, uh, yeah. So also in the meantime, you can check out, uh, the, 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 the songs that are already keeper, my back pocket, turquoise apricot. And she said, no, um, the link to those are in the description of this episode of this podcast, please do listen to those songs because they showcase a different part of myself 
versus, you know, this podcast, which is more my music historian brain. That's more of my creative singer songwriter brain with my with my own music and, you know, taking all the influences that I've garnered over the last, you know, years of my life, you know, listening to all the 60s music and turning it to something original, something unique, something different that has elements of, the, of those 60s songs, but at the, is, is at the same time original and somewhat fresh. Uh, so yeah, so please go listen to those songs. The link to those in the description of this episode, of this podcast, and yeah, um, also check out the you know that inter- that interview I did uh, pretty recently Honk, with Honk Magazine. That's really cool. I love if you guys could read that. Um, you know, I'll let you guys know if I get any more features, any more anytime soon. I'm supposed to have another one coming up, but I haven't gotten the preview for that yet. I also haven't gotten the artwork back yet. Um, so if, but if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see a post from me with the, the EP artwork once that is done. And once I approve of that, um, but yeah, so anyways, uh, you know, thanks for, you know, keep, keep, you know, thanks for listening to this podcast, by the way, cause it shows that you guys really care about me and what's currently going on in my life. I really do appreciate you guys for listening. Um, you know, especially if you're a young person, you've never heard any of these songs before, but Anyways, let's get on this week's show. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's song and our and group, which was Ronnie and the Daytonas, and the song was called Sandy. Um, we're gonna talk about a couple of different things here. Uh, you know, once I get to Ronnie and the Daytonas, but first, um, let's talk about Nashville again for a second because it's been a while since I've actually record actually have talked about. Um, Nashville. Uh, the last time I did it, I mainly discussed how how much uh, you know when Nashville was starting to really record like R and B black musicians in the city, and when that was when that music was starting to you know happen in that town. When you know there was a lot of segregation still going on in the '60s, and uh, you know when that was when that was starting to change, and uh, and also. Um, as far as this particular song is concerned in this particular um, group, it's on a, it's on a different playing field as far as you know that is concerned. It's not exactly an R and B soul song, but one of the people who wrote this song was involved in one of the biggest R and B hits that came out of Nashville in uh, the sixties, which was Everlasting Love by Robert Knight. Um, but it does represent um, the city sort of experimenting with different styles and different genres of music at a time when it kind of, when they, when they kind of built themselves on a reputation for this very specific, um, you know, genre of music that I've explained, I think once before in, in, in a previous episode when I talked about Roy Orbison, but let's talk about that again, because that's worth mentioning. Um, okay. So what I, when I, when I did Roy Orbison, I explained that, in the late 50s, you know, country music was so hillbilly hickish. I mean, it was very it was very much appealed to first of all white people and second of all, um, you know, b- uh, people who bought uh, you know, uh 78s and also albums, you know, who lived in certain areas such as the Ozark Mountains, you know, and that sort of North Carolina, South Carolina, you know, that whole area uh you know like west virginia i mean that's basically what these records appealed to 
And at the time in the late 50s, there was this whole thing going on where you had the rock and roll music that was just just blowing up with Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Fats Domino. And you had all of those major uh, rock and roll artists who were reinterpreting rhythm and blues and turning to something completely different, but still retaining a lot of the same elements from rhythm and blues records recorded by black artists in the late 50s. Um, you had that going on. But at the same time, you still had, you know, very much adult contemporary, um, you know, records that were being bought by adults. Um, you know, at the time, it was considered easy listening. And I'm talking about Peggy Lee. I'm talking about Tony Bennett. I'm talking about Frank Sinatra. I'm talking about those particular artists, which 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 made which made for a percentage of the reckoning by in public at the time, which were again mostly adults, not the not the teenagers, you know, because the teenagers were listening to like Danny and the Juniors and all those you know fifties artists, Ricky Nelson. I mean, that's what they were listening to, and they weren't really buying you know those types of records, you know, those uh, those fit those those adult contemporary easy listening middle of the road songs, and um. The Nashville producers at the time and the guys that were in charge, really, who really uh, were the movers and shakers of the music industry in Nashville at that time, uh, the people who really made crucial decisions about all about what kind of records were being recorded back then. I'm talking about people like Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley, and uh, you know, uh, you know, A and R guys and producers who worked with labels such as Columbia and RCA and uh, a few other uh, labels, um, they they decided that they wanted to completely revamp country music and decide that they wanted to turn it into something, you know, that was more palatable for those adult listeners who are buying records by the likes of Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra and Peggy Lee and Dean Martin, people like that. You know, they wanted to, you know, take a lot of the elements from those records, such as the background singers and the strings, and they wanted to take a lot of those things and, you know, incorporate them with some of their artists and sort of creating this hybrid of country music and pop music and also completely get rid of some of the things that made, you know, country music very hickish, like the banjo and the fiddle and the steel guitar and all these different things that uh, made it seem more hillbillyish and not really uh, slick or sophisticated as they wanted it to be. And uh, this sound was was it was developed in the late fifties with Bobby Helms and a couple of different artists, but it really blossomed in the very beginning of the sixties with Brenda Lee and records like "I'm Sorry." And that's all you that's all you got to do. And a lot of her her records and, um, you know, and, and her records very much represented what was, you know, that sound that they were looking for, which was the Nashville sound, which consisted of, um, you know, the, the 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 guitar players playing, you know, the bass notes on on, on a six string bass. And also uh, the 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 background singers, you know, which which at the time were the Anita Kerr singers, and then you've got uh, the the piano parts, which were very sort of like they were they were pop sounding, but at the same time they're a little country sounding too. And the guy who was in charge of creating that whole piano sound, which was that which was this, was this whole slip note thing, which was actually really cool, where he would like slip from one note to another, 
and he would do like these, you know, these ha- these whole step slip notes and sometimes half net half step slip notes, uh, you know. And the guy, his name was Floyd Kramer, and the musicians that that created the sound in the early late fifties and early sixties were the Nashville A Team, and I'm talking about guys like Bob, you know, Bob Moore, the bass player, Buddy Harmon, the drummer. And of course, you had uh, you know Hank Garland, Grady Martin, Harold Bradley, Ray Edenton on guitar, and you had uh, Har- Hargis Pig Robbins was also a part of that whole sound too. He was another piano player that they used, and Floyd Lightning Chance was another bass player that got used on a lot of these records too. And of course, you had you know Bob Moore who was the main bass player, and the number one drummer was of course Buddy Harmon. And, uh, you know, these were the guys that, you know, were that created this whole sound and, you know, were were there for sessions for people like, you know, like the Everly Brothers and uh, and of course, like Fernland Husky and even some more country crossover acts like Paxi Klein and Marty Robbins and some people like that. And then, you know, Leroy Van Dyke, um, you know, Elvis, uh, you know, these these were the these were the guys that played on all of these hit records, you know, which, again, like, you know, did did really, really well, both on the country charts and on the pop charts. But again, it, it was Nashville sort of new take on country music that wasn't like wasn't as down home or rootsy or organic as like. Hank Williams, you know, senior and, and, you know, records like that. It was to- it was a totally different kind of a sound, which appealed to more the pop buying audiences that, you know, the people who were buying more easy listening records by, you know, Steve Lawrence and, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. And, you know, and that and that whole thing. So it was a it was a mix of that sort of sound, you know, with the strings and the background vocalists and some of those country sort of sensibilities that, Nashville singers naturally had because they were from the South, you know, and uh, a, a good good examples of, you know, records like this included, like I said, I'm Sorry by Brenda Lee, but he also had songs like Want to Be Wanted and You Can Depend on Me and Heart and, and Here I Stand Heart and Hand, which are great, which are really good songs that Brenda Lee recorded at that time. And then Roy Orbison also was very, also re- represented that whole sound too, but his is a little bit different because, you know, the, the structure was completely like 100% different. Like he completely, you know, uh, revamped the whole, you know, he ditched the whole traditional verse, chorus, you know, pre-chorus, chorus, songwriting structure and did just did and did things by, you know, starting out really, really quiet and then building up later on in the song and exploding once you kind of get later on into the uh into the chorus, uh, or once once you get later on in the song, you'd start quiet, and then eventually he would explode towards the end of the song, and then the song would be over. That was his signature thing, and uh, he did that a lot in a lot of his songs. But this was all happening, you know, in Nashville, and the studios that they used were Bradley's Barn, Quonset Hut, you know, which was owned by uh, own Bradley. And if you don't know what a Quonset Hut is, it's actually it's an actual like you know military style. Uh, hut building that was used, you know, a lot in, in during World War II. Well, basically, you know, that's that's the reason why the studio was called Quonset because it looked just like a Quonset hut, you know. Um, and it was it was owned by Owen Bradley, and uh, that's where they record a lot of these songs. And of course, RCA Studio B, which was a studio owned by RCA Records, which was a huge major label at that time. That's where Elvis recorded all of his a lot of his hits as well as Roy Orbison and 
the Everly Brothers. A lot of that stuff was recorded at RCA Studio B in Nashville. Um, but yeah, so while this sound was popular and was blowing up in in the in, in the early '60s, right? I mean, there was tons and tons of hits, you know, you know, using this particular sound. Uh, you know, also, you know, with with people like Burl Lives and a lot of other a lot of other artists were starting to use this sound. Um, another thing, that sound was popular for a, for a good while. I'm talking like from 1958, 59, all the way up until 1964. And what happened in 1964, and this is pretty interesting. So, uh, one of the last uh, you know records to utilize uh, this whole sort of um, uh, Nashville sound with the background singers. And by the way, those background singers—if you just don't know who you don't know who they are—they were the Nita Kerr singers. Um, you know, and Bill Porter was the guy who engineered a lot of these these records too. He you know he mainly worked out of RCA Studio B. And uh, Glenn Snooty also worked out of the Quonset Hut, which later bought out, got bought out by Columbia Records, and it became Columbia Studio B in Nashville. Um, but the interesting thing that happened in 1964 was that uh, a bunch of things happened. First of all, uh, the British invasion took the world by storm. And then when that happened, when, you know, the bands came in, I'm talking like, of course, you guys know Bill J. Cream and the Dakotas, Peter and Gordon, uh, the Searchers, the Beatles, Jesse Springfield. And then they they represented something totally brand new and different with their own interpretations of American songs. Uh, you know, and the interesting thing about this is that when when those records came out, Nashville, the, that whole, you know, sound I was just talking about with the strings and the and the need of curse singers, the background singers and the and the and the and the and the and the guitar player playing like the the, the pick bass notes on a on a on a on a on a six string bass, that whole sound all of a sudden became dated. It was no longer popular with the, with with the teenagers at that time. They wanted to hear more band sounding music and they wanted to hear more music that was that had more life to it and it wasn't and it, and it wasn't as slow or as you know old-fashioned sounding as some of that uh nashville uh th that those nashville records that were at the time and uh you know records that more or less appeal to more the adult record buying audiences but the kids in the early 60s are buying them but once they discovered all these British invasion bands and Motown and Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys because those those also represented new things too. Like the Beach Boys gave this gave popularity to the sound of Southern California and L.A. And then of course you had the Four Seasons, which you know, which also represented this whole other you know sound of like New York and you know those bion rhythms and of course you know Frankie Valley's falsetto. And the Motown, which at the time was killing in the R in the R and B department, you know, and the crossover department too. I mean, you know, and their hits represented the sound of Detroit, which was which was which was which was that hard hitting rhythm driven, horn driven, uh, you know, uh, rhythm section driven uh, pop pop uh, R and B pop records that were big at that time in, uh, in, in, in 1964, when, when, when all these things were taking off musically, um, Nashville, you know, saw all this and they decided, okay, so we need to sort of keep up with these changing musical tastes with the changing musical times. 
and uh, they needed to, uh, you know, do something different, do something that would cater to a lot of these big sounds that were popping up, you know, at that time. And I'm talking, of course, like I said, the Four Seasons, uh, the Beach Boys and Motown. So they created their own versions of a lot of these things. And their own version of the Four Seasons meets Motown was the the new beats and that was a group on hickory records and that was a group that was uh affiliated with wesley rose and you know they were uh, they, they they had that whole thing where it was it was basically tied in with a cuff rose which was you know or a cuff and fred rose's publishing company which fred rose was related to wesley rose and essentially uh, you know, they became, uh, you know, their new group at the time that they were affiliated with was the New Beats. And, you know, and, and they, of course, you know, were the new group that they're working with. And and they they were essentially a mix of the Four Seasons meets Motown. And, uh, you know, because, you know, Larry Henley had the high falsetto lead vocals. And then the records sounded a lot like Motown records, you know, with the big driving beat and the and the and the, and the sort of rootsy sort of R and B style piano, and with the super like you know the 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 quarter note bass line thing, which was, you know, and, and of course you know the tambourine, you know the tambourine hits and the two and four, and you know they basically you know they had that Motown sound, and this particular group, Ronnie and the Daytonas, was a direct Nashville's direct response to uh, the the Southern California sound. I'm talking about like, you know, the Rip Chords and Jan and Dean and the Hondells and all that sort of surf car songs that was blowing up at the time with, you know, with those records, you know, 63, 64. And they're talking about different model cars and they're talking about girls and they're talking about, you know, the beach. Well, running the Daytonas were essentially Nashville's response to those big car records that came out at that time, like Hey Little Cobra and Three Window Coupe and Little Deuce Coop, and all these big, you know, surf and car songs at the time, like, you know, I Get Around, Don't Worry Baby, all these, all these big surf and car hits that were huge in 1963 and 64, growing into 65, you know, so, you know, Nashville was hearing a lot of these songs, and they decided they want to create their own version of that, and then Ronnie and Daytona's came about, and that's basically... And if you listen to, like I said before, if you listen to that album, which had Sandy on, you'll notice that almost all the songs were totally influenced by uh, the Beach Boys. And again, this was Nashville's response to sort of, you know, the changing musical landscape of popular music, which happened in the mid 60s. And by the way, that that whole Nashville sound I was talking about, it was still popular by 65, 66 and a lot of those records were still kind of making the charts, but again, it was leaning more towards easy listening adult contemporary sort of audiences and not really with the record buying, the, the, the teenagers, the record buying public, the kids that were buying records like by the Beach Boys, Four, you know, Four Seasons, Motown, and of course, you know, the, you know, the folk rock bands like the Birds and, and uh, the Turtles and, you know, a lot of those other groups, you know, that, you know, when, when those changing s- styles came into be. Nashville is like okay, we, we you know this our our sound that we developed in the early sixties was starting to become irrelevant and less uh you know popular. So we need to change that up. So anyways, um, let's now that I've kind of explained exactly what you know Nashville's intentions were with Ronnie Daytona, Daytona's, let's talk about the group for a second. 
Okay, so I want to make something very, very clear with you guys about uh, Ronnie and Daytona's um, because this is, again, another one of those groups where it, they were not a real band, actually. And, you know, this could, this could be possible back in 1964, 65, because there was no internet and there was no real way of finding out who were the musicians in the track because, like I said before, a lot of musicians never got credit back in those days as far as studio musicians is concerned um and a lot of people who saw this band on tv automatically assumed that they were the musicians on the recordings even though they had no idea that they weren't actually and uh you know and again like you know this can't be done today because you know we live in such a vast uh inner in, uh, in information sort of age where things could be discovered really really quickly and things could be found out about really easily um, you know, so again, like this, this couldn't happen in today's world, but, um, but yeah, so this was not a real band and it was actually started by a guy named John Bucky Wilkin and John Bucky Wilkin, uh, was Ronnie of Ronnie and Daytona's and her, her mom, sorry, his mom was Mary John Wilkin and Mary John Wilkin was a famous country songwriter in Nashville and she wrote a bunch of country hits for a bunch of different people and uh you know and his and his mom you know using the connections in the industry that that uh his his mom had uh you know his mom set him up with a producer uh and and, and you know and an arranger at the time in Nashville named Bill Justice and Bill Justice was a guy who um you know who produced a huge record in 1958 it was an instrumental song called Doggett uh he he was the artist on that song, and uh, I think it, it was a two. It was a two-part single, so there was Dogger Part One and Dogger Part Two. Well, he, you know, was the guy, you know, who recorded that song, and uh, basically, uh, John Bucky Wilkin assumed a pseudonym named, and basically, that pseudonym was Ronnie Dayton, and you know, and he was the, he, there was only one other guy in the group who was a true original member that you know, recorded with them and also played with them in concert. And that guy was Lee Kraft. But essentially, uh, you know, Ronnie Daytona's were, you know, John Bucky Wilkins singing lead vocals and whoever they can get at the time as studio musicians. And, you know, a lot of these people included uh, Bobby Russell, Johnny McRae, uh, you know, Bergen White and, you know, uh, Buzz Kaysan. And, uh, you know, the, all, those those are the musicians who played on a lot of these songs. And, uh, you know, and again, like, you know, it was basically it was basically those those are the musicians who played on these records. And, you know, and they weren't the same musicians who went on the road with a lot with with a lot of with Ronnie Daytona's. That was a completely different group of musicians. And again, like, you know, no one knew the difference because a lot of the studio musicians never got credit on the albums. Or in the singles, so a lot of people assumed that the touring musicians who performed on TV as Ronnie Daytona's were the same guys in the studio. No, they weren't. There was only one guy who played both in the studio and on tour, and that that musician was named Lee Kraft, and that was it. Everyone else was just you know hired guns, and uh, essentially, <laughs> and and their their biggest hit song was a song called uh, GTO. Little GTO, and, and that was uh, and that was again written by John Bucky Wilkin, and uh, and it's interesting because it's such a Jan and Dean Beach Boys kind of a song, you know, and it's and it's fascinating because, 
uh, it's it sounds just like one of those songs and even has a lyric where, you know, he's talking about buying a Pontiac GTO and he's going to take it out to Pomona. Well, they weren't even remotely close to Pomona. They were in Nashville at that time, you know. So, uh, you know, that was that was the interesting thing about that. Um, but yeah, so um, that's that's basically. Uh, and by the way, um, Buzz Kason, who actually co-wrote Sandy. And that album, by the way, which Sandy was on, there were th- there were four studios listed. There was Backyard Studios in Nashville, Columbia Studios and RCA Studios in Nashville, and Trixie Tone Studios in Munich, Germany. I was like, whoa, where did that come from? I wonder wonder what kind of uh, you know you know what recording they did over there because that's very strange. I never would have guessed that. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, and that's 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 the album that Sandy was on. That's that's where that's one of the studios I was listed on there, and I'm like, whoa! I'll have to find out more about that because that's really weird. Um, but yeah, so um, Buzz Kason, the guy who co-wrote Sandy with uh, with with uh, John Bucky Wilkin, and he joined the group shortly before he wrote this song. Uh, he actually co-wrote a song that was uh, that was actually recorded by the Beatles on live at the BBC. And there was a song called Soldier of Love, and that was first recorded by Arthur Alexander. And basically, they, they wrote it, and then the Beatles covered it. And then basically, and then that's that that's one of those. And they never released it officially as a single. It was just one of those live at the BBC things they did that uh, never uh, officially got released. But then, you know, Capitol picked up on, on a lot of those tapes that were being recorded uh, you know, at the BBC, and they and they and they released an album of those songs, and that was one of them. And yeah, so he wrote "Everlasting," co-wrote "Everlasting Way" with Matt Gaden, and they were on. They were released on the Mela label, which is a subsidiary of Bell Records, and Bell was one of those independent labels at the time that also and had a lot had had some Southern artists and. One of those uh, that, you know, they had uh, James and Bobby Purify and they also had the box tops, you know, which, you know, had hits a little bit later on with the letter and cry like a baby and a Metter at church and songs like that. And, you know, uh, that they, they had hits a little bit later on for label, but Ronnie Daytona's, you know, had hits before them, actually. So, um, yeah, so that's that kind of wraps up. Uh, you know, uh, the, you know, the history behind this group, um, you know, again, like, you know, there was no such group as Ronnie and Daytona's. It was simply John Bucky Wilkins singing lead vocals and whoever they can get a studio musician. And, uh, you know, and the musicians that, you know, played on tour with Ronnie Daytona's were not the same, uh, you know, group that performed the studio with the exception of Lee Kraft. Everyone else was, you know, replaced by studio musicians and Bobby Russell, you know, who is also involved in this group as a studio musician, uh, he wrote songs like Honey and Little Green Apples and The Joker Went Wild and a bunch of other hits as well. Um, but yeah, so that kind of wraps up the history behind Ronnie and Daytona's and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this one. So just a quick little recap on Ronnie and Daytona's two other musicians that played in the studio version of Ronnie and Daytona's Ronnie Clark on guitar and Chips Moman uh, was another musician who played with uh, the group early on, actually, uh, before he created American Sound Studios in Memphis, actually. He was one of the musicians who played with them. And also, uh, Sandy was released in August 1965, and by December, January of December 65, January of 1966, 
very end of 65, beginning of 66. It was in the top 20, peaked number 27. And it was the last single the group released on Mailer Records. And they switched over to RCA, but, you know, essentially this group only had two hits, really, um, to make the top 40. Uh, GTO and this one. And uh, the rest of the other singles, you know, you know, failed to make the top 40, actually. And they might have been regional hits, but they did not make the top 40, actually. So... Um, so that, that's pretty much it for Ronnie and the Daytonas. And by the way, that radio station I was telling you about that said that they would play, um, my songs, that is KSPC in Claremont, actually. It's a, it's a college radio station. So, um, I'll keep you guys updated when my album becomes available for them to play and when they're going to, um, you know, play it actually on the radio because it, it'll become available on the previous release date that I chose for the album, which was May 14th, but they might not play it till after, you know, so it just, you know, they, you know, it, get, it gets the album, my album gets reviewed and then it gets available for the DJs and they can play it whenever they would like to, but um, I'm still not sure exactly when my album is going to get played, but again, I'll keep you guys posted on that. Okay, so that includes part two of episode number 134 of my 60 Music Podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you like my analysis, and, I'm sorry, if you found out some really cool and interesting facts about uh, this week's uh, episode of, uh, if you if you found out some really cool and interesting things about Ronnie Daytona's and, and the guy who co-wrote uh, the song, Sandy, or if you're like, wow, that's really, really cool. I didn't know that. Um, well, then you can email me at samltwilliamicloud.com. Or you can also reach out to me on Instagram, iheartoldies. And also you can reach out to me on my website, samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, you know, so especially if you're a millennial, you never heard of this group before and you're discovering it through me. I love to hear from you. If you're, if you're like that, if you're discovering this group for the very first time, I'd love to talk with you about that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, please reach out to me on Instagram, iHeartOldies, or, you know, go on my website, samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, but yeah, so, um, also you can check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast, or you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about in my show so far, including some of the ones I've mentioned in interview episodes. Please go listen to those playlists, because those will give you pretty good ideas for the kind of music I talk about on my podcast, um, you know, and should give you a good idea for the kind of music I talk about on my show, um, you know, so please go listen to those, and if, and if listening to those playlists gives you any ideas for kind of songs to talk about next to my podcast, and I haven't yet, please email those ideas to me at samltbullyhackalot.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram, iheartoldies, and, uh, you can also check out my singles, uh, you know, the links to those in the description of this episode of this podcast, um, you know, they're all, they all sound different sonically, but they all have that 60s sound. One kind of sounds like a British invasion song, like Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Zombies. And one is a psychedelic rock song. The other one is like an American Sound Studios record, like BJ Thomas and Elvis and the Bach Tops. Um, you know, they all sound different, but they all sound really good. I play all, play most instruments on them and produce them. Uh, they're really, really good. So I'd like if you to check those out too. And you can also check out um, my my interview that I did with Honk Magazine. That link to that is still in the description of this week's episode of this podcast. And you can check out the official Red Bull merch store for this podcast. They'll be able to find the super cool logo that I specifically designed, uh, you know, for this podcast. I would love it if you guys could check it out and let me know what you think of that logo. Um, you know, I would really appreciate it if you can do that. 
um, you can you can if you if you if you uh, if you have any feedback as to uh, the, you know the, the logo or, or the prices of each item in the store, and you want to find out more about that, or if you just want to if you want to tell me what you think of the logo plus the price of each item in the store, please do that by email me at samltbilliagla.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartolies and check out more of my original music at samltbilliagla.com. Um, also, you know, just one more quick thing about Nashville and everything that happened in Nashville in the late, the mid, mid late sixties is that folk music blew up with the Pozo Seco singers and Bob Johnston and Bob Dylan, you know, and then the whole new wave of studio musicians came in, you know, with Kenny Buttery and Norman Putman and Jerry Kerrigan and David Briggs and Wayne Moss and Billy and, you know, and those guys and Henry Slets Lucky, you know, all those musicians came in and they became like the new sort of, a uh, group of studio musicians that took over in Nashville, and they called Area Code Six One Five, and uh, you know those those became the new guys who wanted playing with Neil Young and Johnny Cash, and you know country music became pretty folky, you know, and that's another thing that happened in like nineteen sixty six, sixty seven, another sort of transformative thing that happened with Nashville, you know, case in point with Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan covering "Girl from Northern Country." You know, I think that was that was Bob Dylan's song, but he sampled a little bit of Scarborough Fair in those lyrics, and uh, and yeah, so that's another thing that happened. You know, when co- you know, country music at that time, another transformer thing happened in Nashville, along with Ronnie Daytona's and the New Beats, and you know, Bobby Goldsboro and those and those things as well. Um, so yeah, so I'm Sam Williams, and uh, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy. Oh,